Hi, and welcome to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots, brought to you by Digital Noir. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and we're throwing back to another chat I had at South Start earlier in the year. South Start is an incredible convergence, not conference, put on every year here in South Australia. We get some of the best minds in the world and local from the state to get together and have some conversations about the future of humanity, technology, business, creativity. There really was some incredible people that were talking, and none more so than Alex Moss, who we've got today. Alex has such an eclectic background. She started off in London working in the fashion and art worlds, and then pivoted literally into space. I'm not going to do it justice trying to tell a story. We can hear it straight from her. I think you'll find this one extremely interesting. It really shows you don't know what's around the corner. And if you've got a great idea and you can put your mind to it, then you can do anything. Literally get into space. So without further ado, let's throw back to South Start, sitting cross-legged on the floor in the teepee with some wine on order, I believe, with Alex Moss. Alex, thanks so much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Sam. No problem at all. So you've sort of literally just come off stage? I have just come off stage, yes. I sadly did not get to see uh, your talk. I was sitting in here podcasting. But uh, yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm interested. I, I'd kind of like to delve back a little bit and find mm. out a bit of your history. But um, no, let, let's start there. Like, what, what, what did you do before you were, you were running Canary? Like, what, where, did you, where did you start? Okay, so before I was in Canaria, I had run two companies in London. I had founded a fashion magazine called M2, and I then went on to found an art dealership called The Court, which was a mixture between a avant-garde curation company and an art dealership specialising in up-and-coming contemporary artists in London. Cool. So for that, we would do things like do a whole set design that was very immersive. Like, he would deck, gut out a warehouse in East London and install a labyrinthine maze with a live choir in the middle mm. and just blind our attendees with frankincense smoke. Awesome. In most ways, we were just trying to confuse attendees into buying the artwork because <laughs> they just didn't know what was going on with us. Um, so that's what I was doing. And I was always interested in the sciences. I'd been taught a bit of coding when I was about 12. Then I had to code in Java. Mm. Um, but it was only after that I got, I got back into technology again um, and I felt that with the growing knowledge I'd had about the psychology of design I was really interested in architecture Mm. and how architecture changes human behaviour actually based on a lot of studies in abattoirs about how if you made a sharp wall into a curved wall you would find lower cortisol levels in cattle Interesting. so if that's the effect it has on cattle imagine the effect that architecture has on the human being um so that was the tangent for how i slowly got into tech i had the worst day at work ever for an art dealer in sloan square and i depending on who you ask i quit on the spot slash got fired (laughs) um it was not pretty and i pieced out very hard at that point and I left London, I left the art world, and I went to stay in a garage with two friends of mine in Great Yarmouth and to work out what the hell I was going to do next with my career, because I wasn't happy in the art world. I wanted to do something that was more um, more hands-on, yep. that was producing objects that had more of a significant 
meaning and impact on the everyday life of users. Sure. And I spent about nine months in gestation in that garage, and I worked out during that period that I didn't want to be an artist, I didn't want to be an art dealer, I wanted to be a medical device designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I taught myself Fusion 360, I was reading about medical device engineering, um, I just I just spent nine months training myself up, really. What, what um, there's a couple of things I want to touch on there. I'll, I'll go back to one. So I'm really interested in that, like interior design, architecture, creating spaces, like, actual designing flows for people. So like airports is a great example of this, right? Mm. Airports are designed terribly in the most part. Um, and there's so much smart design that could be implemented in a place like an airport where people don't really want to be there. They're, they're there in transit, right? Oh, oh, I'm just smiling because I've, I've written about airports oh, have you? in the past. <laughs> yeah, airports occupy a really interesting psychological space. Have you ever read anything by Foucault? No. Um, Foucault's an excellent design architecture like more like history of artistic theory theorists he's a great post postmodern thinker sure. um really one of the fathers of academic postmodernism now he called art he called airports heterotopias oh sorry for yeah yeah yes i have heterotopias which mm. are specifically unique spaces of transience yeah, and that, transition right. yeah. whereby you're neither here nor there with them so Very how do so. you manage and streamline the process of these peculiar semi-existence locations mm. so yeah they're never airports are airports train stations very yeah. very difficult locations to design for very difficult but i feel like there's things that could be done in that transitory kind of purgatory where you are to actually increase but i think there's, there's studies around that they don't, they don't want people to feel comfortable in the airport they want them to be buying things in the duty-free shop right so that's and a, you'll note that the, the chairs in airports are intentionally uh, uncomfortable yeah. so that you have to go and you have to spend and you have to buy <laughs> yeah. or you have to buy a pass to the airport lounge that's right yeah mm. this is much more expensive so um again going back so did you study art or art history or what, what? i studied art history at the courtauld institute in london okay. um so i was very a very, very academic mm. background and training. Though at that time, I'd always, um, I'd always been working at the same time as doing something. Claire is so, here with the wine. Oh yeah. So just a side note to listeners: we requested some wine as it's the end of the day, and it yes. has just arrived during our podcast. Beautiful. Uh, I don't know what we're going. Do, what, do we, what do we get? Claire? Is it white? Rosé. Rosé. Yeah. Yes. I'm wearing a impeccably sharp white suit that, unless I'm very careful, will be neither impeccable nor white for very much longer. A, oh, this is a nice rosé, too. I figured it was a, uh, a rosé time of day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Claire. Oh, this is so civilised. This how I'll start TB with a glass of rosé at the end this of it. It's is, wonderful. Uh, this is how it needs to happen. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> And people are being envious very outside. They're walking by very and just, just giving us envious ha- haters, haters. I believe they're, they're yeah, haters. Exactly. Haters. Haters oh, gonna cheers. hate. Cheers, Sam. Um, okay. Saying, and, and you grew up in London? Yeah, born and born and bred Londoner. Whereabouts? Everywhere. Mm. I ended up getting to the habit of moving about twice a year in London whilst I was there. So I spent what, twenty, twenty three years in London. Mm. Um 
Anyway, you were saying background art history, a yeah, very academic, very formal um, art history at the Courtauld. I'd always had a son, I was always a writer on the side though, from the age of about 16 onwards. So I was the in house art critic for a magazine called M2, and that's where I really got to explore with the digital editor at the time, Isabel Jacobs, who I'm still great friends with. Okay. She was really into space travel, and she was one of those rare, I don't like to use the word genius, but it's very hard not to say that about someone who knows as much about astrophysics as they do about like 700 years of art history and a fluent in 13 languages wow. including ancient Greek. Wow. It's very hard not to call someone that. Yeah, when I would, they I would throw the genius term out for that. But she was amazing as an editor and we worked together for years. Um, and she was really one of the figures that was very key within that slow transition that happened over a few years of thinking less about the old Mars and fine art and just more about, ah, oh, well, there's such a strong relationship between science fiction and science and there's such mm. a strong relationship between art and science. And you look at what the futurists were designing and then you yeah. see how that's replicated within academic science, I mean, like two decades later. Um, so it kind of legitimised that heterotopic space mm. from the arts to the sciences for me and so in that uh, in that garage the, 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 what was the where was that pivot point so this was just sort of gelling in your mind I talked before about how it's interesting where these disparate things in your life that you may not realise are going to become a massive um, mm. impact later in life and then all of a sudden something comes up and you're like Oh, this makes sense. This and it all comes together. There's like an M. Chameleon-esque twist yeah, sure. at, the end, yeah. um, at the end where, what was it, was it signs, the alien ones? Yeah, and the signs. children are lining all the glasses around. And then at the very end, they baseball back and it turns out that the water kills the aliens. Yeah. It, it feels like that with a lot of random <laughs> life experiences. I mean, one could have definitely described myself as unemployable just before I found it. Because I had random knowledge of various aspects um and it was something that really came together in the moment at the nasa hackathon mm. in 2016 which is what kick-started my career so as a how did you hear about that why were you there ah um it was relatively random i had a friend of mine who just moved from finance into tech who said look if you're serious about this you have to start going to hackathons and you have to stop putting yourself out there and you have to start um, just doing something with the new skills that you've been gathering in the garage for the last nine months, which is absolutely fair enough. Sure. It's actually a scheduling error almost that made me go to the NASA hackathon. I wanted to go to a different one, but I'd had um, a friend of mine had booked a holiday to go to. Um, anyway, it, was, it turned out it was the one hackathon that I could go to within the next two weeks after I decided I was going to go, sure. which was not my first choice because that was my first ever hackathon. I didn't know wow. at the time how significant it was or what a big deal internationally it was, which in retrospect definitely <laughs> helped me. But I did see that it was NASA and I thought, well, you know, what can I, can, what can I create in the space of three days? I mean, slightly less than that. And I want it to do something that was fully realized. I wanted to go there and then come up with something and develop it. So I, it needed to be realistic in some way. So I was looking at the briefs that NASA put out that year. They had things like, you come up with a new rocket propulsion system. I was like, absolutely not. You could have gone back to your friend from M M2 and maybe partnered with her. To, you maybe, know, you know, I would love to see what she would come up <laughs> with. Uh, oh, I would, she would probably come up with some insane new, like, rocket propulsion system. Um... Anyway, but they had something for wearables, yep. which I, okay, wearables I can do. Um, that's easy. It's very basic electronics engineering. It shouldn't take that much coding to get it up and running. And they had an issue for carbon dioxide aboard the International Space Station, but they had no way to monitor it. So my initial concept was a very easy, 
oh, well, let's do an ear-based CO2 monitor to detect mm. carbon dioxide aboard the International Space Station. And it was one of those moments where everything comes together at the right moment when, once I got there as well, because I was really adamant that it should be based around the ear. And suddenly the whole, you know, nine months of being in that garage and the years in the art world snap into place because I realised no one had bothered to put something on the earlobe. Mm. And the earlobe for pulse oximetry for vital signs monitoring is the most accurate place to get readings from. Wow. So for example, I'm forming ahead slightly as few days after when the thing I ended up working on at this hackathon was so much more than the carbon dioxide monitor. It became a dual carbon dioxide monitor and vital signs monitor for astronauts. Um, but that also had predictive capabilities because if you think about machine learning, um, it's so good at pattern recognition and prediction and the wavelengths that the body emits via pulse oximetry. It's it's just pattern recognition. It's mm. just a slightly different version of maths questions that you get in high school, which is complete the next number sequence. And that's all it is for building predictive biometric systems based on wavelengths emitted by the body. Sure. So over that period, we uh, dramatically went over the scope of what we were meant to do <laughs> and ended up designing uh, what we dubbed the Canary Earpiece. And that's now, um, that's basically now what we've continued building and specializing since then. But anyway, the, the moment when it all came together was the basing the ear and, and so I, what was the spark for that how did you how, how did you how did you find that out i was in the fashion and art world during my time um with as an art critic but with working with isabel actually that i wore a lot of alexander mcqueen ear cuffs okay. and i hated wearing earrings because they were very uncomfortable but if i were one of these and these were huge ear cuffs these were like very avant-garde they were weighty but they were so comfortable to wear that hmm. I could wear them for two weeks at a time and not have to take them off if I didn't want to. And then suddenly, um, oh, I've been reading a lot of neurology over that period of time, and it suddenly clicked into space. Like, oh, the reason I didn't feel that was because there are very few nerve endings around the contra of the ear, or there are loads around the earlobe. Yeah. And Alexander McQueen had accidentally invented the best form factor to gather medical grade vital signs data from the human body hmm. and he hadn't realized it incredible um so that was when it came full circle i was like there's something that we really need to look into very seriously here because this just hasn't been done before and so in those three days at the hackathon was that three days was it yeah about three days. so like what was the like what did you walk out of there with like did you did you actually have software in place then or was it just a prototype we, we had full pcbs mm. we had a we had schematics for pcbs we had a 3d printable prototype cool we also had an awareness of what the what the infrastructure so the systems engineering term was going to look like like roughly we knew vaguely how the jigsaw puzzle pieces would need to fit together for something like this to work um, but we also came away with realising how significant it was for other sectors. And mining was already there from the very beginning. And it was, oh, my God, if we could predict. We realised that we could. We had built something or we had designed something that could be used for things like epileptic fit prediction. But really predicting it 10 minutes before someone was going to have that. So was the, the name Canary, was that, did you have that before you went? Because obviously the Canary. It was the Canary. Canary, Canary was, it was that weekend. was that weekend at that sure. hackathon. And, and so, it was that thought process of being able to predict earlier than the Exactly. Human. The early warning system. Mm. Like the first, the first port of call for knowing that a hazardous 
incident is about to take place was the canary. Were you excited then? Did you, were you just like, because you, you, you hadn't really, you know, you, you didn't even know that this was a I big was thing. I was so tired I didn't know what was going <laughs> yeah. on. It was only on the final day where I'm in the bathroom, I was wearing some crazy furry coat. So anyway, another female coder came up and was like, what you've done is like really amazing. You know that people, like there are physicists from Cambridge, from the University of Cambridge who prepare for a year for this. I was like, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. And then there was one of the organisers went, oh yeah, so you've got to pitch to the NASA panel in an hour, Alex. I was like, what do you mean I have to pitch to the NASA panel in an hour? <laughs> and because I wasn't thinking about it, I just got on stage like, this is what I've made, this is what it does, da 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 yeah. And we uh, won a national award like wow. a few minutes later. Wow. And I remember I was, I was so, so early in my... Um, understanding of electronics engineering at the time that they gave me I said oh you've won a raspberry pie and I thought it was a literal piece of pie <laughs> and like I remember a, going like what is this yeah, it's like, a, like a fair show or whatever it's like yeah no- it was and it was such a radical transition as well that um I remember like it was it was post what we got a wave of media attention as well mm. um what year was that 2016 okay Got a wave of media attention. Mm. And I, I literally had family members coming up to me and like friends saying, like, oh, is this some weird installation art thing? You've, are you playing games with the media, Alex? What is this? <laughs> I'm like, no, I've literally just won an award from NASA. Wow. And now I'm going in for the for the global award to see if we win then. Um they were really great about it. And we just, you know, it's ended up my co-founders and I set up the company immediately afterwards. Mm. Um, established that we had the rights to our own invention, which is important to do, filed a patent. Um, yeah, and then another week off that, we'd won the global, the NASA Global Award for Best Use of Hardware 2016. Wow, so you won the global. So the initial. It co- was in the space of, t- like, really my life changed within two weeks. That's incredible. It was crazy. Um, the first one was in the UK, the, the hackathon. So, yeah, national, national award in the UK, wow. and then it was the global award immediately after that. And so. Did you have co-founders uh, prior to that, or was that just you and then? No, we met. We met that. It was my co-founder, Dr. Robert Finian, um, who's still a co-founder of the company. Um, is the chief technical officer of Canaria Technologies. Um, he's wonderful, and he had a he's had a spectacular career. So he's already lived like the startup dream. He already founded and exited a satellite communications company. He's got a PhD in satellite communications, but he's a systems and electronics engineer. He was on the development team for Pogo, the world's first ever touchscreen phone that just narrowly got overtaken by Apple. Wow. Um, So he's really... Good co-founder. Yeah, he's really been a superstar. He was the best chief technical officer or co-founder could really hope for. And so he was there at the Nationals and saw that and was like, right, I'm on board. This is amazing. Even before the National. Yeah. So he was he was like the second I pitched on stage, which was this earpiece-based vital... It wasn't vital science. Rob made a vital science monitor, actually. I was just pitching for carbon dioxide. Mm. Um, I almost got laughed off stage by the audience, but Rob came up to me afterwards. I mean, I think you've got something to this, because he was getting more into medical device engineering himself. And he went, did you know that we could actually do vital signs at the same hmm. time as what you've proposed for carbon dioxide monitoring. And I went, no, I didn't, but that sounds really interesting. Let's, let's build upon this. Yeah. And okay. we've been running for, yeah, it's just, I think three and a half years old as a company now. And so what's so that journey been like? Like, what, is, what has happened since then? Oh, my God. Well, I have so much. I mean, moving to Australia was a big thing. Why, and why that? Or how um, did that come about? Well... It's just been such a wild journey. Um, and it happened very, very quickly. So immediately after the National World, that press windfall then got us um, introduced to Richard Branson's group of people, 
for the Extreme Tech Challenge, uh, which is a huge, crazy technology award ceremony. We ended up going to Las Vegas to pitch for that. So it was like one wave led to another wave of interest. We were just riding, riding that wave. And at that point, a year, yeah, one of the business in London, I we'd, I'd started doing market research and because we had 12 different industries we could have gone into and 12 different use cases. So the first year was working out what is going to be our beachhead market with the knowledge that what we were doing was we were in essence one of the first generations, I mean, remain one of the first generations of a predictive biometrics company combining miniature medical hardware with artificial intelligence to predict serious medical events, but before they happen. Um, it's very broad. Yeah, very it's, it broad. Is very broad. And it ended up being that mining looked like it was going to be our first beachhead market, especially because designing for manned space exploration was so echoed by the requirements for building for underground mining, because you're still dealing with really severe communications issues and you're dealing with extreme environments. Yep. And actually, recently we're now we've you know just launched the Canaria. We've just launched the Canaria puck last week to market, um, which is capable of dual cognitive fatigue and heat exhaustion prediction and users for the aerospace, defense and resource sector, especially um, underground mining. And mm. as part of that, we realized, you know, we had people going, uh, oh, no, but will this ever work? Because, you know, you have to build to intrinsically safe standards. And we're like, mm, OK, what are intrinsically safe standards? This is two years ago when we first got here. Mm. And then we looked into it and we're like, this is much easier than building for manned space exploration. We're actually not going to have a problem with this, Um, which was a good boost of confidence, I suppose, at the time we were first getting to market. And so the mining market here was part of the impetus to... to Yeah, sorry, I drifted off there. That's all right. Um, Yeah, (laughs) absolutely it was. So, okay, so the Richard Brand thing, and then I got an introduction via a guy called Bill Ties, absolutely phenomenal. Um, super, super technician himself. Um, really well, or he's worth a look into for listeners after this. Bill Tye um, is a really fascinating. He's one of the original investors in Twitter. But how, do, like, how do you spell his last name? Um, B I L L, yeah. and then it's, I think it's, I, I think it's just T A I. I need to double cool. check that's that. Fine, I'm pretty can, sure that's it. Um, but anyway, he said, well, if you're serious about mining, then you have to go talk to this group called Unearthed, because they're the world's eminent mining investment group and accelerator program, and they're the only group that you should be working with who can actually get this to market. Um, so we contacted them immediately. I don't I don't think... Um, I'm just laughing about this. I don't think Unearthed will mind too much in me saying that they basically told us to fuck off <laughs> when we first contacted them. And then it, it took us eight months of just validating that what we wanted to build was possible, gaining a bit more traction in the UK, and then eventually after we got another wave of press nine months later because of a pitch at a Innovate UK event, mm. that they ended up contacting us and going, you know, actually, we are interested in this. You've clearly made progress since we last spoke. Like, when are you available for a call? Nice. And eventually it turned out that they, they gave us this culminated in an investment offer into the company for us to move to Australia but the ultimatum was you have to be here in 10 days and if you are willing to relocate from London to Brisbane we will invest in you Wow! and we moved and we've been based in Brisbane ever since how's that transition been for you oh amazing you like it absolutely amazing I love Brisbane yeah cool that's good it's a very new city it is I was just speaking to uh, Steve Baxter and uh He's from Adelaide originally, but I think the the 
growth in Brisbane in the last decade has been pretty immense. Like it's, it's, it's been crazy. Even over the two years I've been really? there, there have been huge developments. I mean, they've got the boardwalk now. Yeah. They've got um, felons. It's really, and there's more. It's growing very, very quickly. It's kind of, it's amazing to see that actually. And quite interesting in this tech space too. So there seems to be quite a, a fair bit going on. Oh yeah, which of course was was really driven by Steve Baxter. Yeah. And Steve was one of the first people I met in Brisbane, and he was um, super and mentoring me. To this day, I think still believes that my company is going to fail horribly. <laughs> Does not hesitate in telling me this yeah. every time we see each other but is just so super person to person. It's one of the most invaluable advice I've ever gotten has been from Steve. Um, With the first thing, you know, first he was like, oh, I think your company's going to fail. I was like, well, well, why? And he gave me, I can't remember what it was, but there were five very, very clear reasons as to why he thought at that period of time, about a year and a half ago, if not more, that we were going to fail. And I noted them all down. And I was like, this is very useful. And I think at the time he thought that I didn't hear him because I wasn't, I didn't react. I was yeah, just, sure. take, just taking it down. Mm-hmm. Um, then I spent the next six months just going through every single one of the concerns that he raised and going, I think these are really valid. So how can we address these and completely turn it around to make sure that we don't die? Because one of those five reasons have happened. And to date, we've managed to avoid them. But we only avoided them because someone flagged them to us. And then I, th- I think that this is going to kill you. What was an example of one? Um, I'm happy to share. It was, yeah, it was long, long contract negotiations in the mining sector. And okay. to be fair, it did almost kill us at one point there was a week where we almost went under because of that exact issue because a contract negotiation just went on way too long and we had anticipated it would last for about half the time that it did i've got some colleagues in uh, tech software that have launched stuff into mining Mm -hmm. and were literally had 15 people working on this thing gung-ho because they had a purchase order but no contract signed yet it was literally like two days, two two days more without this being signed, and things were just going to go pear shaped. It's it's you know and it's so common. A, a it's tw- the biggest problem a, in mining tech, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but I would think space would be even harder, no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, space is definitely even harder. I mean, I, I, okay, well, the plus side, the plus side for space, there are only ever six people in space at any one time aboard the International Space Station. So you get all of them to wear one of your devices and you get to say, we have a 100% market share of the space market. Though in practice, that's... Sure. It's six people. But, but you the, get to say that you have a 100% market share. The, the space aspect definitely works from a PR angle better, oh, it's better than mining. Like I, I wrote down here, I, th- I think you actually said it, but you know, taught yourself a new skill set and punked your way into NASA. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a good kind of easy one-liner, right? Oh, yeah, I know. I couldn't have ended up in, <laughs> in the resources sector without having gone through that, that NASA um, initiative. Like, it just wouldn't have crossed my mind that that was even a relevant industry. Nice. So I'm going to pivot a little bit now. So you were just saying you're having a, a wine with Elaine. I spoke to her earlier this morning. I, 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 she's been on the podcast a couple of times, actually. Oh, I love so Elaine. yeah, she's she, she's awesome. I asked her a question that you had written actually in, in the article that you wrote um, about her. Oh, yeah. um, you mentioned that uh, you thought the Australian ecosystem was 20 years behind. Uh, yeah. New York or you know, London or Silicon Valley. With, with Brexit, mm. it's now only 10 years behind. <laughs> There's our 100% productivity for Australian VC companies that you can... Uh, <laughs> it's not inaccurate. Yeah. So uh, take that as a win uh, wherever you can. So I was interested. So Elaine asked what Elaine thought about that. And she thought that, yes, we're behind, but 
it's not going to take us 20 years to catch up, right? So we're catching up faster. So that there's a, the, the lag is no, being that, that I agree with. Um, yeah, it's learning, it's learning faster. And as an, as an example of this, um, as of 2018, in the US, only 2% of technology founders were women. By comparison, though, in Australia, 12% okay. of founders were women. So there is very much an avenue for Australia making a faster jump to a new level. And I agree with that. I don't think it's going to take 20 years to catch up. And she was interested to know, I don't know if she asked you, but she, she asked me to ask you whether or not that was, yeah, more so a cultural difference. Like, so, so, you know, uh, as a woman founder in the Australian ecosystem, mm. like, is that more difficult than it would be? I, I know you just said the stats there, but is, is that more of an issue here, do you find? I... Look, I don't know. There, there are a few... There are really two things that make... Whatever answer, I get very biased in this respect. One, sure. I'm a woman, so I only know what it's like to be a woman. So as far as I'm concerned, like, all those interactions are just, like, the same. Like, why would they be different for anyone else? I mean, and they are, but that's the, the life experience that I have. Mm. And... Sorry, I've forgotten the point. Uh, Can I the question again? So, starting from... So, Elaine was interested to know around... Is it the cultural differences? Sorry, there? the second one. Sorry, yeah. the sec- there's my second bias is that I'm a hot. There's that I do hard work. Yeah, that's the big second okay. bias. Okay, interesting. This. And anywhere you go in the world, to find hardware is always harder. Yeah, there is an inherent bias against hardware. Yeah, where because investors, most professional investors, don't understand because they've not built it, which is fair enough. They've usually made their money in software, mm. and hardware is a different skill set. It is a different team. It is a different methodology. Um, that a lot of investors are just very scared by that and to some extent that's understandable sure but there is a unique advantage with hardware that you cannot get with software and that is because yes it is harder and it is longer to get to a product but when you are there you have way fewer competitors than doing software like you know you say you want to imagine that you're going into fintech right now and doing a fintech like how many competitors? You're like 10,000, sure. 20,000? Cloud-based accounting software. doing the software. same thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. My company has two global competitors. Okay. That's, That's it. it. Two. And so I'm, I'm interested. So let's have a chat about the actual the hardware since we're oh. talking about it. So you, you're wearing it right now, I assume. I am. I yes. am wearing a park. Um, so and you so at dinner last night you walk in it's a it's a it, your attention is drawn to it right so mm. tell me a, a bit about I suppose what you know, what you're wearing now can actually can do what what, what what's, sure un, what's so under the hood I'm wearing right now the Canary Park 4.1 we just launched this re- literally two weeks ago cool. two weeks ago ten days ago so this is a wearable device that clips onto your belt or an armband it looks. Um, like a puck, yeah. Hence the name, mm. um, with an alert system uh, which is d- set to ambient rainbow at the moment, which is just nice. pleasing for these kind of events. <laughs> but this is reading my vital signs via pulse plasmography in real time, as well as my ambient temperature data. Cool. And it's not just my my entire my entire team are now wearing one because we have to build gather the data sets to build accurate artificial intelligence systems with this but this device has been made to predict both cognitive fatigue and extreme heat exhaustion but simultaneously uh, which are the two biggest problems in aerospace resources and defense for personnel about two-thirds of all problems are caused by cognitive fatigue Numbers for heat exhaustion are actually almost unknown. We, th- we think it's about 8,000 serious incidents occur every year in Australia. But we're the first company, in, in the West at least, 
to be able to objectively measure whether someone is having a heat exhaustion or a heat stroke event or not. So we're, we're really discovering these numbers wow. as we go and as we get to market. That, as we are, oh, Jesus, we're already in market. We're literally finding new figures about this every week at this point. It's quite interesting. Um, I've got a mate that works uh, like in the local council, right? So there's a cer- certain, uh, certain heat level, everybody goes home from work, right? So there's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's just the, the level. Looking forward in the future, if, if there was a way of measuring that. So, yes, no, these are unsafe conditions for people to be working in. Um, for, in terms of productivity and cost saving, that would be incredible. I'm interested to know around cognitive fatigue. Like, how nuanced is that? So do you, can you tell when you, like, will that read when you have absolutely so there are a few different ways to get to cognitive fatigue i'm not necessarily going to give my competitors any free publicity but they are legit like they're not dumb companies the way that we do it is different though we base it on heart rate variability which is one of the best early warning indicators for predicting cognitive fatigue so it's like your your mind and your heart can't communicate with each other properly when you're under so much physiological stress. So what our equipment is able to pick up on is extreme incidents. Like, we can't tell Mm. when you're a bit tired, but if you've been working for 16 hours and you're 10 minutes away from passing out, that's when we can detect that you're in a high-risk zone and we'll send out alerts accordingly for you. Um, Do you ever find yourself in that zone? (laughs) The irony (laughs) of working on a cognitive fatigue prediction startup is not wasted on me at all. I'm sure that my my readings are good. Actually, one of the first... One of the first validations ever for replicating an academic study with us was we were working so hard and Rob and I had pulled, I think it was either a one-night or a two-nighter, but it was was ridiculous. We'd been awake for well over 24 hours at that point and we were getting a grant application together to meet a tight deadline. We were both wearing um, comparable equipment, an earlier version of our equipment at the time. And there's an email at about four in the morning from Rob to myself going, I cannot physically go on anymore, Alex. I am so tired. I'm like, look, just clock off. We've been going for two days now. That's fair enough. But then we looked at the data sets after we'd submitted that grant. And you can, to the minute, when Rob sends that email and his heart rate variability spikes. Wow. And we knew, we, again, this has been validated in academia, but with uh, long distance driving and with extreme sports. But this was the first time in the company that we had replicated an academic study mm. and had proved for ourselves that, yes, this is an accurate marker for cognitive fatigue. Wow. I mean, there's so many use cases for this. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of endless, you know, the, the industries and the... At, so I'm interested in in your vision now, having been in this for three and a half years, and the nine months in the in the garage. Like, what do you see as wearable technology, or you know, um, you know, the the future of our sort of symbiosis with with this kind of tech as humans? It's a good question. Um, I guess we can break that into two two different questions. One being, where where do I want my company? Where do I want Canary Technologies to go? And the other one being, like, what do I genuinely see the future as? And the two do have an intersection. So the first one is that it's not necessarily just wearable devices. I envision us and I'm working towards us becoming the world's best predictive biometrics company. And that's a wide field. So basically, at a core... 
you're breaking down data about how the human body functions with artificial intelligence to predict future body functions. So it's not necessarily just limited to wearables, though we have been cutting our teeth in very high accuracy, medical grade, in fact, wearable devices. Now, the second one is where do you think the future is going with wearables and humans? I think a lot of it depends on how governments handle legislation Interesting. over the next five years. Because um, one of the things that we're doing and one of the things that we get the most amount, most amount of pushback about, which I think is completely understandable, is how is my data going to be used? Yep. Are you going to sell this to third parties? Mm. What happens if you accidentally predict an illness? Who are you going to tell? Are you going to tell my, my employer or are you going to tell me? Am I going to be fired if my employer sees that I have had too many fatigue incidents? And, you know, for us, we're developing to a stand whereby we hope that we will lay down the foundations for what, for what legislation for these predictive variables should be. So, for instance, we don't develop to Australian standards for this because there really aren't any Australian standards for this. We developed at European Union data privacy standards, sure. which means that we have two tiers of anonymization in all of our users' data so you just can't track back to whatever it is. We also have different ways of communicating with managers versus our own users who always get to see their own data at any time they so desire. But the, the manager gets a tidied up version of that. They don't get to see the, the guts and the bones of it. Yeah. Um, and the future will really depend on whether this technology is legislated to work with human beings to help them avoid pitfalls or just to help them in general or whether they end up being used as a tool of control and against discipline. us yeah what's your personal thoughts on that so i mean uh, data security data privacy comes up a lot in the podcast and we, we talk about it a lot around you know because 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 there's you, you can see in a, in a medical application this being you know if we have predictive technology that can predict cancer mm. that can predict epileptic fits i why would you not want to have that? But then in the wrong hands, this is... Uh, and even taken back to, a, you know, from an insurance perspective, mm. let's say, you know, that if the government all of a sudden has uh, information about your health, you know, and, and, is, and is basing it's, insurance premiums on that, then that's not information you'd want out there. It's true. And this is, this is why I nail it down to the importance of legislation in this, because to date I have seen a handful of companies playing in the same... By the way, not our competitors, but just other companies in predictive biometric systems... Um, there's one in particular that I won't name that was giving a talk and giving a pitch event in London about three about three years ago and they gave this whole spiel which I thought was technically dubious by the way of being able to read 30 different metrics simultaneously from your finger based on your iPhone camera wow. with the light and I was like what yeah. like maybe five but you need so many years of data to make a claim like that as anyway it's but <laughs> i was already going okay i think this is i turned to rob and i was like is this dubious he was like yeah it's dubious it's very dubious it's even possible to do but at the end of that the founding ceo went to the audience with such pride in this room of investors and went, and the way we're going to make our money is by selling all of this data to insurance companies. Oh, Jesus. I was, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, okay. Jesus, that was awful. I yeah. actually put my hat, I gave him a bit of a bollocking at the end of that, of like, well, how do you feel about the fact that you're going to ruin millions of people's lives if you do that? Yeah. 
um, which I hope turned off a few of the investors in the audience, but it was kind of sickening to see how much traction he got, actually. Well, not real real traction. Who knows what happened sure, to that company? Sure, but interest the the anyway. Yeah, it was really hard to see a huge level of interest into what he was building with that as a selling, which I think should be illegal. It and should that, absolutely be illegal. And that's just a... That's just a um very plausible reality of what might happen with that data in a in a you know in a, in a, in and a, in a that's the thing and you're always gonna have there's always a few who ruins the pool party sure. by having a shat in the pool at some point it's, and, and you have to legislate against that it's not good enough to hope that a free market will take care of itself because sometimes the people who do the best are just the crappiest people yeah and who are just great at business and networking or are rich already and you have to legislate to prevent that from happening sure and you mentioned brexit before like we're in an interesting climate right so you never know what's around the corner so you know the, I, I think i think in the next decade that your average everyday joe is going to become increasingly aware of of, of their data that that exists mm. in the world and the security that they have because it things are going to happen that's going to make people all of a sudden realize actually this is <laughs> I, I should have been paying attention to this stuff it's uh I th- it, and i think it will take something like quite scary to to shake up people you know a facebook hack's not going to do it that's actually already happened in the uk mm. there was an nhs uh protocol that was attempted to be implemented i can't remember the name of it off my head but they did already try doing this in the uk really? and there was a security breach wow and they had to shut down the entire um, I think it was very well, off the top of my head, I think it was very well meaning. I think it was just being able to um, track people's medical data and then share it with other hospitals, which was totally standard. But then they didn't through th- think through the insurance premiums and yeah. then there was a data breach and they had to shut down the in- the entire project. Yeah. And, that, um, and that, that's where legislation really comes into play because, I mean, you look at, so we've had the... Um, you know the the census thing that the, the, that went down here in Australia, mm. where the you know the systems were just basically built poorly and everything crashed. But if if we're giving sensitive data to the government, then what what failsafes are in place to protect my data, which is mm. essentially mine? And there's interesting stuff around blockchain and around other technologies to sort of potentially future proof that. What's your like personal day to day? Like do do you, do you think about your your data online? Like you're on social media? Like do you, do you, do you, are you concerned about that kind of stuff or? Yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. Mm. Um, depends on different levels. I don't really care about social media very much mm. because my social media is well curated. Like, sure. I have a team that helps me with that. <laughs> so, um, you know, everything I post online to social media, I know potentially can be picked up by the press. And it is um, it is designed to facilitate that. Sure. And it doesn't matter. But... Um, do I get worried when the Royal Bank of Scotland has a systems breakdown and I can't access my banking information yeah. on my phone? Fa- yeah, that's very, very concerning. Mm. Um, you know, I do my best to make sure that I don't have the same password for everything. I'm just, um, what can I say? I mean, there's, there's, um, yeah, the answer is like, yes, you can tell I'm scrabbling around right now because yes, it is such a big concern for me day to day. I exist in the exact same uh, space because I, I know that I know the, uh, you know, the pitfalls there, but still, you know, it's difficult to have do that. You sort read, of, do you read Hacker News by any chance? Uh, a little bit, but yeah, not really. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great source. I love mm. it when they have a cybersecurity expert who goes on there yeah. and either reveals something quite dramatic that's already happened. Ah, there's a website. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course, yeah. It's something like haveibeenfucked.com. Uh, uh, porn. It's P-W-N-E-D. Have I been owned? Yeah, have I been yeah, owned.com? Yeah. I'm so pleased that you know about this. Yeah, yeah. And you put your details into it, and it 
I think it's your website username and it comes back to you yeah. with has there been a data breach of yeah. your data on a platform and it's fantastic. It's fantastic. But also like are they gathering your data by doing that yeah, though? Because that, yeah, be, that would be a great way. If that if they were scammers, <laughs> I don't think they are by the way, but if they were scammers, that would be a great way to gather a, oh, totally. lot, of, a lot of information <laughs> about users very quickly. I first heard about that. There's a, a great uh, podcast called Reply or I don't know if you've heard of it before but they uh, someone they, they, they sort of dive in and try and solve people's problems on the internet. Um, someone's Uber account had been hacked. Um, and someone in Russia was using their Uber account. So they sort of dove in and tried to find out how that had happened. And essentially, their Yahoo account had been hacked during that big Yahoo hack, mm. in, you know, whenever it was, 2008, I think. Um, but what, you know, what these hackers do, they'll get a series of email addresses, they'll have one password against that, and then they'll just, they'll just try variations of that password against all your other accounts. So um, you know, once you have been breached once, then... You know, if you don't have good security protocols in place, you're, you're pretty you open. You know, I actually find this so funny because I, I take extra precaution with um, data privacy with my company, of course, but I definitely don't apply the Personally. same rigor to myself. Yeah. So I'm engaged to a data scientist who is very into cybersecurity, and he goes really the extra mile yeah. to make sure that, like, there's <laughs> never, like, it's like seven, oh, God, the it's like full sentence random passwords for everything. It's very inconvenient, right? It's so inconvenient. But then we went on to have I got owned.com with my <laughs> crappy cybersecurity protocols. He had gotten owned, and I hadn't gotten owned. That's great. Well, Sometimes there you go. it's just luck. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I won't take up too much of your time, but um, uh, how have you enjoyed this conference? Like, I'm interested in your thoughts on Southstar. Super. I love that this afternoon was a very space sector focused mm. conference. Perfect. Which, yeah, I absolutely love that. It's good to see the progress that the Australian Space Agency is making. And yeah. I'm very pleased that they picked up on... Um, intersections with the mining sector, actually. Because yeah, cool. so many of the technologies for both mining and space are applicable to each other. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm pleased that the space agency picked that up sooner rather than later. Do you find, do you think you see yourself here in an, another five years in the same space? Or are you going to go back to the garage and uh, study something else and come out with a, some new idea? I'm in it to win it, babe. Yeah. In it to win it, Sam. <laughs> nice. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be here. I'll be with my company for as long as it takes to become the world's best predictive biometric company. Awesome. I can't wait to watch that journey. Yeah, we'll see how it happens. Um, we'll chuck the, uh, the links up to your website and stuff in the show notes. Okay. So if, if you're good, well, cheers. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sam. No worries. Thanks. Bye. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I kind of... Uh, tempted to to go in a sabbatical in the garage myself and come out with some cool new idea it really does show that yeah applying yourself and uh, pivoting in life can happen at any stage and who knows where you end up you might end up in space or moving to australia with a new tech startup so definitely keep an eye out for what alex is doing really really cool stuff and i can't wait to see it uh, making an impact on the world like many of the cool people that at south start are doing so that's it from me today. Thanks again so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the chat today, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And we will catch you next time here on Humans Aren't Robots. Cheers. <laughs>